Oh yes, this is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. Okay, we're doing this. Buckle in. I'm adjusting myself on my fighter pilot seat here. Get ready to go. This show is going to be great. I'm excited. I've got a fresh piece of paper here. This is going to be a learning download. I can't wait to interview my guest today, have a conversation, talk about things like Google ads and, and growth and performance marketing. Well, who is he, Casey? Who is he? He is live from Bulgaria. He's a SaaS leader, an agency founder, a podcaster, an ex-Googler. He is brilliant, and he just got married. So we, we have so many things to talk about. Talk about building performance into your marketing, building ads that make sense, and we're going to talk about things that just aren't fair. I can't wait to get into it. He's the host of Paris Talks Marketing. Bit of a spoiler there. CEO and founder of Hop Online, Paris Childers. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me, Casey, and what a fantastic intro that was. Man, you're a busy guy. Well, I like people to believe that, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not as busy as it might appear. Man. Well, I can't wait to get into this with you. Um, so I'm going to hand you this thing. It's heavy, but it looks like you work out. So one sec. Here. <clears throat> okay. Here we go. Thor's hammer. Take that. that. All right. You got to grab that. Okay. You got I it? Got okay. it. All right. So take Thor's hammer and smash some kind of marketing myth bogus strategy, misconception, set the record straight once and for all. All right. Well, we're going to be talking a lot about Google ads today, and I want to bust a myth that has been prevalent for, you know, maybe the, since, since the founding of Google AdWords 20 plus years ago. And that myth is that Google ads levels the playing field for small advertisers. And I hate to break it to you all, especially the small advertisers out there. I think that's bullshit especially today, Google Ads is not a level playing field like it used to be in, in its inception. So the early promise was that you could come in with any budget, even a tiny budget, like $5 a day or $10 a day, and you could have your ads appearing right in the same group or even above some multi-million dollar companies. Wow. Because there was basically an open auction. It's a fair auction. If you have a better ad, if you have more relevancy, a higher quality score, you can actually beat out those big players in the auction, regardless of their budgets or regardless of how big they are, their revenues. And I hate to break it to you all, but that just simply is no longer a reality. And the reason is that as the platform, Google Ads, has become almost entirely an automated platform driven by AI, then these larger companies now have a massive data advantage, an unfair data advantage, because they come in with larger budgets and more resources. The larger those budgets are, the more clicks that they can generate, that is powering AI. That's, that's providing big data to AI, and that is providing a major AI advantage. So that is gonna lead you to lower cost per clicks. A quality score doesn't really matter anymore. So relevancy still matters, but basically if you go in with a huge budget and which implies that you'll have large data, that's going to feed the algorithms much faster 
And it's going to get you to optimize your, your return on investment much, much faster. So you can squash the little guys now with a big budget. So that promise from the early days of, of AdWords that this is, this is a level playing field, sorry, just ain't the case anymore. It's not it, right? And you know what's crazy is just like with SEO, whenever you hear a strategy that sounds familiar from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and I, mean, I think back to, hey, quality score used to be the thing. We talked about it, right? Here's how to improve the quality score on your landing page. Make sure it's relevant and all this stuff. But times have changed. You can't rely on two decades old marketing strategy. Right. At this point, you got to bring that money. It's like in my mind, I was thinking like, AI don't care. AI wants your money. Google right. wants your money. They are not, it's not like a, a sandbox where everyone gets to play with the toys, right? It's, it's different. No, it isn't. It is not. Yeah. Google is saying, take your hands off the wheel and give us your money. As you said, we'll, we'll take care of it. Give, tell us what your goals are, where you're trying to go. So we want to drive this car now, not you. You just tell us where you're going. Make sure that you've got enough fuel in the tank <laughs> and, and keep now, adding it. Now, now with a small budget, that's dangerous, right? They're, now, it, in, they're still saying, give us your budget. We'll let yeah. AI, AI maximize things for you. But at the end of the day, the algorithm's overall looking to maximize profit for Google. So they're, they're taking the big budgets and it just because you have, it's like AI won't, there's no morality, right, built in. So like, it's not necessarily just going to take care of you. And, and I don't think, yeah, we kind of laugh. The joke is, you know, Facebook or Google, they're not going to have the algorithm pop up a little box saying, please stop giving us money. You're an idiot. And you don't know what you're doing. Please go away. They're going to be like, oh, yeah. well, maybe you should optimize a little bit more. Maybe well, yeah. think of increasing your budget, friend. Well, one of the most common, uh, not error messages, but I guess in-app messages that we see in Google ads at the campaign level is that this campaign is limited by budget. So very <laughs> right. often, right. and this is something that appears in red and you're, you're, it's in your notifications and you really can't not see that. And they're telling you all the time, feed this campaign with more budget because there's more opportunity. Then usually that means that there are more people searching and you haven't maximized the, let's say, impression share. But sure. they're very, very loud about, about that message, limited by budget. So I'm, I'm, I am correctly warned off now. I, and it, even just the other day in a, in a quarterly planning meeting, some of the people on the team were asking like, why, why aren't we doing paid ads, you know? And, and I think even before the fact that you're going to get squashed by the big guy's budget, if you, you can't just play around in it, right? Like as much mm -hmm. as everyone would like you to think, just give us your 50 bucks and we'll, we'll help you playing around and leaving that budget, you know, with that, and you don't know any better. It'll just take your money every day. Yeah, that budget will evaporate. You'll have almost no learnings. And yet the other thing, we have clients come to us, our, our prospective clients come to us all the time saying, I want to start really, really small. And then I want to prove the ROI at a really mm. small level. And then I want to scale it to the moon. And that, right. I guess that's another kind of a side myth here that you can start small and prove it small and then scale it. Not really. You've got to come in pretty big. You've got to come in with pretty big bucks right away because the results that you get with a tiny budget 
are not representative of what you would achieve at scale. Now, scale means different things in different situations. We work mostly with SaaS companies that are in very competitive categories. And most of the time we tell them, if you're not ready to commit a starting budget of $10,000 per month just for Google Ads, you shouldn't bother. Don't come in with 2,000 or even 5,000 because it probably won't work even if, I mean, whatever results you'll get with that tiny budget, it's not gonna be an indicator of what you're gonna do at when you 5X or 10X that budget. So you've got to commit a fairly large amount right away um, to, to even get into the game, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is good. So we, we know what not to do. Don't dabble. It's not amateur hour. It's not open mic night. <laughs> so what is the right way to approach it? We have a lot of people listening who are SaaS, who have the bigger budgets, and they've maybe they haven't really realized till just now that maybe they shouldn't dabble and throw that 2k you got to go big or go home so how yeah. do we approach this the right way the right way to approach it is to do a lot of research up front before you even launch the campaign starts with keyword research so i'll take a SaaS company most people do know what their keywords are but google has a tool called the keyword planner you should use that tool there are also other tools that can do this but you want to try to understand how big is the market? How big is the search market? How big is the, how, how many qualified searches are happening per month? And that's going to kind of give you your quote unquote, TAM, your total addressable market for search, paid search. And then you should build out some sort of a calculator, which can forecast what kind of results you can expect given different fluctuations with, with several different inputs. So you've got number of qualified searches from your keyword research. You want to look at, all right, now, what is the average cost per click we think we'll pay? You get that from the keyword research tools. Unfortunately, now in, in competitive categories, that can be expensive. Then you've got to look at your click-through rate. If we write good ads, what, what kind of click-through rate can we expect? That's going to actually give you the number of clicks. That's what you're paying for. And last, and maybe most importantly, is... What is the landing page experience? Because we need to convert, we need to maximize the conversion rate post-click. So it's almost never a good idea to send paid clicks to your homepage or to any other page on your website. And that is another, I think, common misconception. If you're gonna go in big and serious with paid search, you better have standalone landing pages ready. Don't, the only traffic that I would send to your homepage would be your branded traffic. People are searching for your own name. That's a navigational query. They want to find your homepage, send them to your homepage. Everything else, non-branded, send them to a dedicated landing page that strips out all other navigation. It basically provides an A or a B option. A, you bounce and we lose you. B, you convert. And there's a single call to action that focuses the user on a single conversion and makes it very easy to convert. And the form itself, the conversion process, should remove as much friction as possible. And that's what getting really prepared is all about. Researching, forecasting, and building a great landing page or landing page experiences that will maximize the conversion rate. And then if you, if you roll all that up and you say, all right, we get average cost per click of $5, and we're going to convert 1% of those clicks into, uh, into demos, into sales qualified leads, 
then we're going to pay about $500 per sales qualified lead. Now, does that make sense for us? Well, mm. we're converting 10% of our SQLs to customers, which means that the customer acquisition cost in that case would be 500 times uh, divided by 10%, which is $5,000. So if, could, I, could I stomach a $5,000 CAC from Google Ads if this calculator holds up roughly? Well, depends on my annual contract value. If my annual contract value is 10,000, 20,000, or better yet, if I know my lifetime value, mm. then I know my LTV or my ACV to CAC ratio. And if that's acceptable, then we're ready to play. We're ready to push some bucks into Google ads. I would go through that entire thought process and preparation and landing page building and analysis of ACV LC or LTV to CAC. And then if that looks good, that I'd push in the big bucks, but I wouldn't dabble with small money and, and let's see how this goes type of approach. You know what? Um, yeah, I, I used to show some junior marketers, new marketers, we'd Google something, click on an ad. And if it went to the homepage, I was like, see, amateurs, they're wasting it's their lazy. money. It's you lazy. can't go to your homepage. <laughs> I mean, obviously branded search makes sense, but you just yeah. have an ad on learning language and you just went to your random homepage and it's like, yeah. it's, su it's, it's right. It's lazy. If, um, some, if someone has to navigate anywhere after an ad click, you've done a bad job. Yeah. They, they ought to come to a page that directly specifically answers the question that they needed or the problem that they posed in their search query. It's got to yeah. nail it. If, if they've got to find the answer with more clicks after the ad click, your conversion rate will, will plummet. You don't make people work, man. That's it's work. Work and friction gets in the, in the way. You know, you brought up an interesting point. The idea of if you do know your lifetime value or you do know your, your contract value, you know, your annual contract value, and you compare that to your acquisition cost, you get a bit of a ratio. Do you mm -hmm. happen to know any, any ranges of ratios that, that are good or that are industry standard? The, from the clients that we've worked with that have had investors, most of them VC for seed round or series A, these investors typically want to see at least a three to one ratio of LTV to CAC or better. And if that ratio goes much higher than three to one, that's a signal to, to scale more, to grow faster, actually. Because if it's too profitable, it might mean that you're sacrificing growth. If it dips below, say, 2.5 to 1, then it's a signal to optimize because then you're missing your profitability target and you might need to slow down on ad spend and slow down on growth and focus on optimization. So we've had clients who, who's, who've had investors that have given us kind of like a, a band where we can, we can play between 3.5 and 2.5 to 1. If we exceed 3.5, we should... We should put our foot on the gas and focus on growth. If we drop below 2.5, we should lift our foot off of the gas and focus on optimization. So sometimes on podcasts, you get hyperbole, you get pie in the sky strategy, uh, get to know your customer, you know, or like, um, I don't know, do, you know, do blank, but like this is so concrete. This is so... You know, if you're listening and you have anything to do with ads whatsoever, if your team is running them, calculate this, find out, 
Are you in that range? Are you, be, you between 2.5 and, and, and 3 or 3.5? Do you even know, <laughs> right? Do you even know? And if you do, now you have some solid guidance on that. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Do you tend to see ratios way out of that when you first start working with someone? Well, most often what we see is that they don't know their lifetime value. Okay. And therefore, if you don't know your lifetime value, then you really don't know what you can afford to pay for a lead because you don't know what you can afford to pay to acquire a customer. And a lot of times we work even more in the CRM upfront than we do in Google ads because the CRM will tell us, all right, what, how, what portion of your SQLs proceed to opportunities? What portion of those opportunities eventually become closed and won? And if we can work with those numbers and then when the closed and won, what is the annual contract value? And then later on, what kind of renewal or churn rates are you dealing with? And if we don't know LTV, we, we typically try to fall back on annual contract value. And hopefully you can at least be acquiring leads at, at, at up to half of your annual contract value. But that involves also having a really good structure in your CRM where salespeople are assigning accurate deal values with accurate probabilities at every stage of that sales funnel. And that, that's the real key. If you, don't, if you don't really understand the values in your CRM, then you'll never really know what you can afford to pay for a lead. And then it just becomes more of a qualitative, ROI becomes more of a qualitative exercise where sales points the finger at marketing and says the leads are crap. Marketing yeah. points the finger back at sales and says, you guys aren't, you guys aren't selling. You can't close. Classic. And then it's not, it's not quantitative anymore. So we're really trying to, to break down the, the silo between marketing and sales and build like a, a really a, a flow across the whole journey. And so that, that reaches well into the CRM and the more, the, the higher quality of the data in the CRM, uh, the, the better Google ads is going to work for lead gen campaigns that are based on uh, so-called value-based bidding where you're, mm. you're bidding to maximize pipeline value in the CRM, which is the typical way that we do it. Okay. Yeah. So it, you're connecting, you're getting the data from there, right? It, it's not, and I'm, what I'm getting from that, it, you're not doing AdWords in a silo. You need to know these costs. Otherwise, who cares if it's $30 a click or $1 a click? It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a meaningless metric in the grand scheme of things if you don't know about conversions. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Crazy, crazy. So we're not dabbling. We're going to spend the money. We're maintaining our ratios. We got to get those super sexy, very optimized landing pages. Do you, do you often build them out, build out like hundreds of them tying into each keyword or how do you wrangle that? We have gotten into that level of scale before. Um, usually we start with a couple of templates that can, that can be scaled. So a, a template really is, I'll give you an example. If we want to bid on competitors' keywords, we'll build a template that focuses a lot on um, the, the category heuristics that compare features in that category of your competitor A versus your brand. And that's typically shown in a table. And that needs to be, it can't be too overly biased. It needs to be fairly objective, but you want to position yourself as a better value for money than your competitors. So that's a template. And then around that, you've got 
the, the typical triggers like social proof where you have testimonials or ratings that come in from customers. You've got your authority bias with some of your big logos of customers. You might talk up a little bit about features. So that would be a template. And then above the fold, which is the, the area that users see as soon as they open a page before scrolling, these are the elements that you want to do multivariate testing with. So you've got a, typically you've got a hero image. You might have a hero video. You got a headline, a subheadline, and a call to action. Those are the key elements that you need above the fold. And you can multivariate test different elements. You can change out CTAs. Um, you can test different language. You can change out videos or hero images. And a lot of times, the most important element is that headline and the subheadline. So imagine you've got a campaign that has 100 ad groups, and every ad group is organized by not by this a single keyword ad group, the so-called SCAG, but by, key, by keyword themes. So you've got 100 different themes. So typically, every theme is, is someone that expresses a unique problem to Google. And you want to answer that question in the headline. So when they click through, they should see the answer to that. So if I want a, um, let, me th let me think of an example. Mm. Um, I, want a, I want a CRM for, for um, legal practice, for lawyers, a specific CRM for lawyers. Now I might have a CRM that can work well for lawyers and a hundred other service businesses. But if someone searches for that term and that's in an ad group, they're gonna come to a landing page whose headline says, the number one rated CRM for lawyers in the United States. And mm. I mean, hopefully we can make that claim, but it's not going to say the best CRM for small businesses or the best CRM for uh, ser service businesses or even legal. If they, if they type lawyers, they're going to see lawyers in the headline. So that's the, the most important thing because we want that user to click through and say, boom, that is exactly, you know, in that split second, it could even be subconsciously they, they know I'm, I'm in the right place. So they're almost half converted in that half a second where they see the exact keyword that they searched for in the ad headline. And you know what, Casey, it's pretty easy to do. Use a tool like Unbounce or something like that. Yep. And you can, just yep. cut, you can just duplicate to infinity these pages and you can substitute in different keywords. And I'm amazed at how few advertisers make the effort to do it that way. And it, you know, to your point, it, it goes to intent. And I remember when I was selling language learning software and we would have separate pages for French and Spanish, right? Because they search for Spanish, don't show them a French page. They probably shouldn't see the French product on this after a Spanish search, you know, and so show them visuals, but also to the headlines and the subheads. Uh, but we, we then, we, we got even more granular and we thought, well, what if people are talking about the, the kind of way they want to learn, right? And someone who wanted to learn Spanish easy was different than learn Spanish fun. And learn Spanish fast was different mm -hmm. than, you know, learn Spanish for work, right? And so yeah. each one of those was, a, was an opportunity to reach out and say, ah, you, you're learning it for work. You might have a trip coming up. Maybe we could message you about that. You know, or, oh, you just want fun. Bro, this is fun. Sign yourself yeah. up. This is going to be a blast, you know, versus someone who I need, I need quick, right? So we were just, we were cognizant of that. And, but of course, you know, the, the challenge can be that now you have lots of landing pages. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 
but they're easy. They're easy to to roll out and to scale. True. To, to deploy True at, at huge scale. Yeah. Crazy man. Where where do you go to learn? Are are there any books you've been reading right now? Any pods? Where do you like to mm -hmm. learn things? Well, you know, a lot of my learning right now takes place right in my LinkedIn feed. I have to say. So five years ago, I used to read a lot more blogs than I do now. Um, that has that has gone down quite a bit. I think this is really a testament to what LinkedIn has built. And I think a lot of people are in a similar case. I still listen to a few podcasts and I do enjoy that. But I do find myself kind of snacking on a little bit more like micro learning where scrolling through the LinkedIn feed and I'll get I'll get interested in something and then I might go down a rabbit hole. But I've I've really unsubscribed to most of most of the newsletters that I used to read. Haven't gone to, to a lot of the blogs that I used to go to. And so LinkedIn is my source. And I'm trying to also now uh, put that into practice for myself and for our agency and put out the, the kind of snackable learning content that it seems people are gravitating to now in LinkedIn, in the newsfeed. Mm. So I can mention one, one name. There's a guy named Chris Walker from Refined Labs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chris. If yeah, you've seen him, yeah, he's, he's crushing it. And he's got such a really... Uh, unique and finely tuned message, which is really debunking. What he's debunking is the myth of attribution software, which is that in today's environment, you can really understand the, the specific dollar value ROI attribution or assist value of every single channel in your marketing. Yeah. And, um, and he's really showing that a lot of people are doing things that could never be measured and it kind of comes full circle back to doing great marketing and putting great things, great things out there and investing in, let's say, upper funnel or mid funnel marketing activities that don't necessarily give you a, a perfect attribution towards final conversions or ROI. Right. So it's bringing right. a fresh perspective to demand generation. And I do, I do follow his stuff a lot, uh, his posts, his podcast. Um, and, and he's great, man. You know, he, he was actually on this podcast, and so you really? guys are now fellow alumni right. of the Thor's Hammer. And but I will right. say he he was drinking a cold brew coffee during the show, and yeah, I gotta I gotta pace myself with cold brew coffee because you can you can Oof. awaken the inner dragon. But he told me he had had a couple before our episode, so he had a couple before the show, and then one during the show, Whoa. two during the show. So. Man, Chris Walker. Casey, I, I can't. Well, fire. that's off of him. I, I got off of coffee entirely about Did two years you? ago. Yeah, I mean, I drink black tea now, but. Tea, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine just pounding um, the cold oh, brews one after the other. No it's way. like when you see teenagers out there slamming monster energy drinks, like some giant thing. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Don't worry. Yeah, What's in there? You'll be fine. Cheers. Oh, but you gave, okay, but hold on. You gave up coffee. Was there, was it, was there a reason? Was it like a new year's resolution or you just decided you were just well, doing I too was much? I was starting to get, you know, I didn't feel that good. I, I was getting, I had always gotten a little jittery and then I, it was a coffee in the morning and then one in the afternoon. Yeah. And then sometimes I, I wouldn't have great sleep. So part of it was sleep quality. I had started doing the, this intermittent fasting routine where I wouldn't yeah. have breakfast. So when I was doing straight black coffee with no breakfast and that would sit in my stomach for a few hours before lunch, 
my stomach started hurting. I, th- I was starting to worry maybe I might get an ulcer or something. Yeah, someday. I felt that too. I know what you're talking about. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just was, intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. You ever done the uh, the the hardcore? What is it? Hardcore coffee? There, there's some kind of coffee with butter in it. Have you heard about that? I have heard about that. I've never tried it. Well, what is that supposed to do? Oh, it's bulletproof coffee. That's what it is. Oh, bulletproof um, coffee. Yeah, and it's got it's coffee and butter, right? Yeah. Well, you know the the apparently the story is the founder went hiking in in the in Nepal and was just absolutely gassed. He goes into a tea house and he sees the locals doing fine, and they put a, a cup of yak butter tea in front of him, right? And it was it was tea with some yak butter in it, and it tasted a little funky, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But after that, he was just on fire and he had energy and he he was like, what the heck did I just drink? And it was because it was that fat content in the butter. And so he mm. launched Bulletproof Coffee. And it's exactly what you would think it would taste and feel like to drink coffee with butter mixed into it. But I, the idea is that it basically it zonks your cravings because you uh-huh. just had more fat content than you can imagine and you burn that off. In the morning, so it's kind of like an intermittent fasting add-on. But do you break your fast if you drink that? Because of the, you know, are, there, a, are there calories in it? You know, I I guess the idea would be you would break your fast, but it's keto, so you're just mm-hmm. doing fat, so yeah. the fat isn't going to spike. I don't know, but it, like that was the idea. Is levels, that yeah. It breaks. It, so isn't that the, the intermittent fasting like we have nowadays but the idea was but then you wouldn't eat anything else maybe until dinner because you just had all this fat so it would like you would stay ketogenic if you did that okay so have you have you tried it what the the bulletproof coffee coffee yeah i, mm-hmm. I drank it for a bit maybe a month <laughs> what happened yeah uh nothing <laughs> other than i drank gross coffee in the morning uh this is probably not wow. a good ad for them uh, but the chocolate flavored was a little bit better than, than traditional because you just got butter in your face. Some people make it themselves, but couldn't be bothered for that. Um, yeah, you know, it just wasn't my deal. I, I found much better results with just like straight intermittent fasting, you know, where it's just like mm-hmm. no meal for breakfast, you know, a little bit later lunch, shrink that window. Do you have like a, a tight window for yourself? I, I try to keep it within eight hours. Sometimes that's a nine hours. Sometimes dinner is a little later than it, than I want it to be, but. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, I try to go for eight hours. Eight hour, eight hour window's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of these days you can be a, you know, real badass and shrink it down to like OMAD. Have you heard of that? What is that? Is OMAD's that one just, meal a day. Oh, one meal a day. <laughs> I don't think, I, I, I think that's going to be too extreme for me. Um, right. I don't know. Yeah. I think I'm good where I am now. I, I've, I've heard about that too, but. And I, I don't want to lose I don't want to lose more weight. I think I'm already probably, you know, needing to put on. Yeah, you're looking you're looking uh, refined over there across the ocean. Totally, yes. man. Well, yeah. well, we've already started digging into this mystery. Who are you? Who are you, Paris? How, how do you know all these things? You've been at Google. You've been all these places. Now you're leading companies into actually doing paid media. Like, take us back in time, little Paris. Day, where did you grow up? What was life like? Did you know you're going to be a leader? running agencies, doing all these things when you're a little guy? Well, I'm from, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and um, I, had a, I had a pretty traditional uh, 
conservative Catholic upbringing in New Orleans. And I mean, in terms of future leadership, I always kind of considered myself to be a leader. I was, I was a quarterback on the football team. And um, generally, I believe I had those, those qualities from an early age. But I didn't really know what I was going to do. In fact, I, I didn't really figure out what I wanted to be in life. I mean, you could argue I still haven't, but um, until yeah, right. well, well past college, I mean, many years after even grad school, um, where I, I really gravitated towards digital marketing. So it was a long journey. And let me think about this. I mean, I got to Bulgaria in 2005. So that was now you know, um, around 18 years ago. And that's also about when my digital marketing journey started. I didn't start the agency right away. I, I dabbled in a couple of entrepreneurial ventures. And, and then eventually I realized there's an opportunity here to, uh, to build something here in Bulgaria, but to service clients in the U.S. and internationally. And the agency kind of sprung up almost by accident, really. It was, I never had any grand ambitions to build to build a big company or, or to be the head of an agency. I didn't even really know what an agency was in, until I was actually accidentally starting it. Hmm. But I, I, did, I did have a passion for, back then it was Google AdWords. I was really into that. And I think the reason was that we had this great combination of both the, the linguistic, um, linguistic skill set where you could really try to you had to you had to find the keywords, understand the intent behind those keywords, and then you you crafted these ads and you had the limitations. And I was always it was like a the, the perfect game for me, writing an ad with character limitations to answer the intent behind a certain keyword. And then then came the quantitative part, which was back then you would do manual bidding. So um figure out it was just it was just a thrill it was a game to figure out how to how to outbid the competition and how to how to beat them in every aspect and that was the that was really what sucked me in and then later i got an, i got the same kind of passion for seo particularly when black hat seo really when when google cracked yeah. down on black hat seo and black Wizards, a lot of its techniques yeah that that stopped working so then it really became about creating content and having a really good technical site yeah, and um, also acquiring links, but not, not doing it in a black hat way, but just figuring out how you can actually um, reach out to someone and, and showcase a great piece of content. And yeah. so SEO also became something I was really passionate in. And then I guess at, at some point I had too much work to do myself and then you start hiring people and then you wake up one day and you've got an agency. That's kind of how, how it went. And then things, things grew from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, the idea of the, the accidental founder, right? <laughs> You're just following a passion and something that intrigued you. And lo and behold, things sprung out. How did you end up in Bulgaria? Well, what brought me to Bulgaria was a program called MBA Enterprise Corps. And that's, that's basically Peace Corps with spreadsheets. So if you know, if you know what Peace Corps is, people, people volunteer to teach English or to work in local yeah. communities and people, Peace Corps, are mostly young people that are right out of university, MBA Enterprise Corps are people that are right out of MBA school. And I say it's Peace Corps with spreadsheets because it has a little bit more of a business consulting focus, 
uh, but it still is basically sending recent MBA grads into developing or emerging transitioning economies to work with local organizations or companies and uh, to try to implement, help them imp implement best practices, best um, give them business acumen. And I signed up for that right out of, right out of my MBA program. I, I went to Vanderbilt and I graduated without any really interesting offers. Or, uh, this, this was still when I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I, I had a real strong itch to go overseas. And I got a chance to take a project in Bulgaria. Wow. And I thought at the time, I'm only committing about a year of my life here. What's the worst that can happen? And that one year has now turned into 18 years and counting. Wow. 18 years. Yeah. Do, Which is, do a lot of people speak English? Is, is there a lot of like... Yeah, they do. I live in the capital in, in Sofia. And most people, at least most people under the age of 50 speak pretty good English. That changes a lot when you, when you go outside of the city. Sure. But um, the level of English is, is quite high here. Okay. So, um, if I, if I was going to visit there, what is like the, the must do thing to eat and see and mm -hmm. like, what, what, what's like the number one recommendations? Yeah. Top things to eat, believe it or not, would be the salads. Uh, there's, if there is, if there is a national dish, it's a Shopska salad, which is tomatoes, cucumbers, and peppers, sometimes onions and olive oil and it's covered with this white crumbly cheese called sirene or sirene it's pronounced which is similar to greek feta cheese and you put that all on top of the salad and it's just delicious so oh, i've been man, eating those fantastic. that's a summertime thing but I, I i eat almost one of those a day throughout the summer and yeah. i think all over the world we're having a very long extended summer here so the tomatoes are still really good I'm still able to eat my Shopska. That's the thing to eat. The things to do would be to go into the mountains. There are a lot of different beautiful mountain ranges. And that's what I enjoy doing most. It's, it's a relatively small country, but there's a, a very, very diverse nature. And I love, I love to get out and, and experience it. So you have great skiing in the winter, but in, in the off season, uh, just hiking and, and walking. There are some, a lot of great lakes. There's the Black Sea to the east and oh, wow. you also regionally you've got greece right below so also the beaches in greece are really accessible and absolutely stunning so i, I do feel like on most days i feel like i uh, i have one of the best kept secrets for among among all my friends from home that yeah it sure sounds like a lot it. of people know about that's really has a great a great quality of life I mean, Louisiana is cool and all, but that sounds fantastic. Yeah. I just lost all the listeners in Louisiana, but it's okay. We're, we're picking them up in Bulgaria. Let's go. It's all right. I can, I can say some nice things about Louisiana too, and we can try to get them back. I mean, uh, right. Yeah, Louisiana, Louisiana is still my home, and I love, I love that place. And that's also, I would say, the best food in the U.S. probably right there in Louisiana. So, give well, that, it, give That's where we get into a heated debate there about the best food okay. but i will say the best barbecue i ever had was in a gas station in kansas city you know it wasn't even in oh, a yeah. restaurant um, oh sure yeah barbecue kansas city texas uh, maybe tennessee mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really has to do with the type of food we're talking about. Um, right. I'm, I'm referring more to the Cajun, uh, Cajun style. Yeah. Now in Good. Good stuff. Well, yeah. hey, I have a bit of a hypothetical question for you. All right. So I may or may not have a time machine over here in New Hampshire. So next mm -hmm. time you come visit Boston, you drive up and we, we hang out, get some lobster, get some beer, and we, we play with a time machine. It's a particular kind of time machine. And we get to go back and you get to visit yourself a couple days after that undergrad. And was that, was that in history? Yes, that was history. in American history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so you get to go see yourself, you know, maybe you've recovered from your parties at Columbia and you just graduated and you get to visit that you. What kind of things would you tell yourself? What kind of advice would you give yourself? I think the, the broadest advice that I would give myself, so I was 21 years old, didn't, didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think I kind of fell into following in the footsteps of what people around me did, playing it a little bit safe. I took, I took a job that was a re really interesting job, definitely, but I, I wasn't really taking enough risk. I think I would tell myself to, to be an entrepreneur from day one and to take more risk because I found that I think that being an entrepreneur really is my calling. I love, I love the lifestyle. I love to be my own boss and to be able to, well, in a way, design my lifestyle around my work instead of having my work yeah. dictate my life. And, but I didn't realize that until many years later. And I guess probably around the time that I came to Bulgaria was when I really tapped into my entrepreneurial spirit. By then I was 20, 27 or 28. And so all through my 20s, I think I was kind of playing it safe and doing things that either uh, people expected me to do or that I felt that this is, this is just the way it goes and I have, to, I have to pay my dues. But in fact, you don't always have to pay your dues. If you're willing to stick your neck out and take risk, then you, you can do it as, as soon as you're out of school. So I would probably tell myself, now, digital marketing was, was different back then. So we're talking about 1999. There was an internet. It was the very early days of the internet. And I, and I knew about it and I was interested in it. Um, and I could have found something then. But if I think about, had I started this agency, I mean, maybe not at the age of 21, but if I had started it in my 20s instead of in my early 30s, that's another 10 years of, of learning experience that, that would have accumulated. And I think the learnings from running a business, uh, they compound like, like compounding interest does. Uh, and I think I missed an opportunity through a large part of my 20s to, to have an entrepreneurial journey. Now, I don't regret that. I mean, it's not like it was a lost decade or something for me. I had other great experiences. But that would be the advice I would say. It would be take more risk. Don't be afraid to do something that might disappoint your parents might disappoint your friends. It might be something that your friends might say he's crazy, but like really go with your passion and, uh, and take some risk because if yeah. you fail, especially at that age, it really doesn't matter. You probably either have no money or you're, or you're massively in debt with student loans like I was. So if you fail, I, the, the, the fall is so short and, and you can pick yourself up again so quickly. Like that's, that is really the time to fail the younger that you are, I think.
Go for it. Do it up. Love that. Man, this is like, this has been so cool. Where can people connect with you if they want to learn more about you, connect with you about the agency? They maybe need to get some help, get some real help on the, on the paid side. Where do they go? Well, our agency is called Hop Online, and that's hop, H-O-P dot online. You can see what we do there. I have a podcast called Paris Talks Marketing. I yeah. aspire to be as good as the hardcore marketing show someday. I think the way <laughs> you've laid this out is, is brilliant, Casey. Well, I appreciate and that. we talk about, well, we, we talk all things marketing. We, we speak mostly to a SaaS or a tech scale-up yep. type of an audience. But that podcast is... Uh, it's interesting if, you know, maybe if you want to learn more about some of these types of strategies that we talked about today. And then, of course, LinkedIn, if you want to connect with me personally, I'd love to have a chat. Paris Childress on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one with that name. So find me there and let's connect and let's have a chat. Heck yeah, man. And dude, I, I am, you know, sign me up. I, I'm looking forward to hearing your podcast. and. Good stuff. And for those listening, we've got a lot of work to do, but we've got some we've got some great places to start here. Man, Paris, thank you so much for coming on here, schooling me up on these things. LTV, ACV, the ratio with CAC. I don't know. Have my ears been full of wax? I feel like this is the first time my brain has accepted that knowledge, and I'm excited, and I will never look back. I will never oversimplify the paid side. And I will not dabble. If I'm going to go in, I'm going to go all in. So I really appreciate you coming on here. Thanks so much, Casey. I really had a lot of fun with this. I really appreciate what you said too. Heck yeah. And those listening, if you learned something, and I freaking know you did because I literally have two pages of notes over here, front and back. I'm writing margins. I'm drawing X's next to things that aren't true. It's not a level playing field. Don't start small. Don't think, <laughs> don't go to the homepage. Just do the don'ts. Just don't do the don'ts and you'll be that much ahead of your competition. But if you want to get even more ahead, you know where to go. Um, man, with that, Paris, thank you again. You're the man. Thanks a lot, Casey. It was a pleasure. All right, guys. Hardcore Marketing Show. What a crazy cool episode. We will see you all next time.